0: If I were writing a book on that, Leviticus, my introductory chapter would be 200 pages. (laughs) Something like that. Uh, You can't just wade into the book of Leviticus without some sort of preparation for that study. And... uh, uh, we're going to spend some time doing that, and I'm going to give you some general remarks after we finish James today. Before I begin with prayer in a few minutes, I would like to recommend a book. Um, I have several of uh, four, five, six. I don't, I don't remember. I stack them over there on the book of James. This one here is one that I would recommend simply because. First, he's contemporary, uh, uh, Douglas Moo, M O O, just like the cow. Okay. Uh, He has, the last I knew, he was on the faculty at, what's the name of the place? Trinity Trinity Evangelical Seminary um, in suburban Chicago or Waukegan or whatever that is up there. Uh, With, uh, uh, what's his name? yeah, Dr. Don Carson. He is a um, uh, colleague of, of Carson's. And I just love the way that Moo writes. He's a contemporary writer, and so therefore I, I tend to be able to uh, read it with a much more, what, fluidity? he's um, easy to follow. I think he writes theological stuff In a way that most of us can fully grasp it and understand it, it's um, not—it's not beating you over the head with all the technicalities of theology and everything. Although, please do not think he is not an accomplished theologian. He is that, Um, uh, and I happen to like it. James by (coughs) Douglas Moo. (coughs) I think I got this one online for about fifteen dollars. Um, And that's where I get most of my books is online. And uh, I think it's a worthwhile investment. No, I'm not going to give it to you. (laughs) I'm going to keep that for future reference. Okay, I may be back to the book of James here shortly. Let us begin our studies and our time together with a word of prayer. Let's pray our Heavenly Father. We come before you by virtue of the blood of Jesus Christ. We come before you as your children through Jesus Christ. And we ask, dear Father, that you visit with us, that you be in our hearts and minds as we look into the things we're going to be discussing this morning, both from the uh, wonderful book of Little Letter of James and our introductory remarks to Leviticus. We ask your blessing upon this morning and upon each and every soul that is here. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The reason I wanted to do a little summary of James is that sometimes, after we've looked in detail at the passages through uh, uh, through the book, you kind of lose sight of the overall kind of thing. What is James about? I'm going to open it up this morning because I want to answer any questions that I can about the book of James. What is it about? What is the book of James about? Now, I'm, going, I'm feeling pretty bad that after all this time we've spent in it. <laughs> uh, Uh, This is James, if you remember, and we settled, and I believe rightly so, that he is the uh, half-brother of Jesus Christ, who came late to faith in Christ. It wasn't early. Uh, In the beginning, his brothers and sisters didn't believe in Christ at all. But at Pentecost, uh, in the upper room, I should say, We find that his brothers were there. And so uh, something has happened, of course, with James. It was the appearance of the Lord after the resurrection that likely, although not recorded in detail, likely had that uh, converting effect upon James. And then he became a pillar at the church in Jerusalem Uh, and While most of the Christians were pushed out, particularly the Jewish Christians were pushed out from Jerusalem and chased out of the area by the Pharisees and the Jews there. Nonetheless, the church remained and James became a pillar of that church, a leader. And we believe that the letter of James was targeted at those people that had named the name of Christ. They were Jews primarily, uh, but they had named Christ as Savior and had been chased out of Jerusalem to various areas around the Mediterranean Sea. And he was writing to them. He is one of the earliest writers of the New Testament. I won't uh, say the earliest, but certainly very early. Some say in the mid-40s he wrote um, uh, his letter early on. And some would say, as Moo kind of suggests, that that is the reason that there is some controversy about his treatment in chapter 2 of uh, justification by faith and works as opposed to Paul's justification by faith alone. It was a misunderstanding, and you have to understand that context of how that was working, how early it was that James was writing before Paul's ministry, for sure. And, uh, uh, and that he, we already studied in that chapter, you know, that there was no contradiction between what Paul was teaching and what James was teaching. You had to understand the context. Boy, I, I tell you, that reminds me, and takes me all the way back to seminary. When my professors used to say, uh, uh, distinguish the times, and then you will better understand. By that they meant, you have to consider when a, uh, uh, an epistle was written, if you're going to understand uh, what it was. And so this comes before the ministry of the Apostle Paul. At that time we had Peter, James, and John um, uh, uh, who were the leaders and pillars of the church at Jerusalem and they were, if you will, the uppermost echelon of of the faith at that point in time. And so James quickly rose to this position uh, um, early in his conversion to Christ and from the upper room on, we find uh, uh, these uh, uh, James as as a uh, primary one of the primary leaders of the church in Jerusalem. So I wanted to kind of go over this book. Does anybody have? I asked the question. Nobody answered yet. What is this letter about? Generally speaking, I will allow three different things. Yes, Rose. One thing you've told us many, many times, he writes very precisely. There's no doubt of what he's trying to tell us. And he lets us know, there's going to be problems. You're going to have burdens you're going to have. You're going to sin. But <clears throat> please remember what Christ did. See what, uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, uh, if you read the book of James and you read all that he said, using good sense, you would not want to be a Christian. (laughs) I'm just being candid with them, okay? Uh, he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I'm still under conviction on that point. Do you count it all joy when you run into all kinds of problems and trials in the faith? I confessed already to you as a class. I I don't think I meet that all the time. And I've been under conviction to, to make sure that I address those things in my life and to not complain to God about the circumstances of my life, but rather to see the wisdom of it and how it is meant for me to, what, comport to the behaviors of Jesus Christ when i think about the difficulties that i might have in life and then i think of jesus walking up that hill to calvary my troubles are nothing by comparison to what his was and uh, and he knows god is sovereign this church is and there's all kinds of literature out there now about uh, uh, our church believing in the sovereignty of God that these things happen according to his purpose and plan the things that happen in your life god knows indeed god has sent them how do you like that but it's true We fall into various trials, and it is meant that we should develop patience and the like. But it's all about, as Rose said, this letter is about living the Christian life very plainly. He speaks living the Christian life and what it looks like. And the first thing that he mentions, (laughs) trials. The Christian life is made up of a variety of trials, or at least it has that nature. The trials and development of Christian maturity is what James is writing about. Christian maturity. How to live a life maturely in Christ Jesus our Lord. And let me tell you, it's not easy. But that's thus the reason that the Lord... Uh, inspired him to write. It's chapter 1, verses 2 through 18, that deal with this initial thing, the trials of life and Christian maturity, the development of Christian maturity and patience and endurance and all those things of which we spoke. So that's the first. I have five divisions in the book of James. The second one is begins in verse In chapter 1, verse 19, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be slow to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Thus begins his treatment of genuine Christianity expressed in works of righteousness. In works. And he'll come later and say, you know, faith without works is what? Dead. It just isn't real. You must have, and that's exactly what he meant by justified. Uh, when he uses justified, the Apostle Paul uses the word justified in the sense of declared righteous by God. But uh, 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 James uses it uh, in the sense of Proving, proving your faith by works. It is not that you, works has earned that salvation or faith, but rather it expresses itself in works. Genuine Christianity. I will not ask you, but I mean, I won't ask you for names, but you all know people who claim to be Christians who don't have any works that follow. One, they don't go to church. Two, they don't speak of Christ on a regular basis. They do not rejoice in him. And yet they claim to be Christians. I encounter it all the time on Quora and have to debate that kind of stuff. They think that God is this loving being that we, mankind, created to love everybody and to treat everybody equally. Baloney. If you're going to serve this Lord, you need to demonstrate it by your works. And if you do not have works, your faith is not real. Dead, he calls it. In chapter 2, genuine Christianity is demonstrated and seen in the works that you do. And if you don't have those works, you need to rethink your standing before Christ. Is that strong language? I hope it's not too strong because I have an obligation to tell you the truth. Just about everybody in this room have works that follow. I'm thankful for that. The third division, chapters 3, 1 through 4, 12. Divisions in the church. Do we have any? Of course we do. Anytime you put a group of people together, you're going to have some difficulties in the factions that are in that group of people. And he deals with that issue. And that the Apostle Paul does too in the latter parts of his letter to Romans. He deals with something like that as well. Uh, by the way, there is uh, something of a model that is being followed if you think of it. James doing the way, writes the way he does, and the latter parts of Romans, they're very similar. And, and so. Uh, talking about divisions in the community of faith. We have those unfortunately and we need to cope with them in a Christian fashion and James gives us those instructions. In chapter four and the beginning of chapter five you have what I have called the Christian worldview, One of the one of the most important factors in my own life. Uh, uh, Boy, it's hard to to describe this without describing my earlier life without Christ. I was essentially an atheist. I didn't have a philosophical atheism, but I didn't believe in any God. Okay? Okay. But then I was converted. You can read about it sometime on my website or something, or I'll post it. I have an account of my conversion. I've told you guys about it. I got a short version, that's 15 to 20 minutes. I got a medium sized one, that's uh, 30 to 45 minutes. And then I got the extended one, that's about two hours or so. (laughs) But one of the things that came out of my conversion was my conversion not only to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, but to a worldview. Christians are different. Christianity is different. And you must express it. You uh, have a worldview. Everything is affected by our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to think of five or six examples, but I'll give you one. Look outside and it's a beautiful day, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't God the author of all of that? Look out there. Look at there. It's like a picture through the window. My worldview says God created that whole thing. God created corn. Corn. And man is busy about collecting that now and harvesting the corn. But it is God who created it. It is God who created the clouds that float overhead. It is God that creates the windstorm that comes and blows your roof off. You need to have a Christian worldview. Everything has changed. I went from an unbeliever near atheist to a person believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as a worldview. Everybody in my life at the time, except for Bev, everybody in my life was stunned when I returned to my hometown with a different worldview Wow. And they're still stunned. They don't quite understand it. Guess what? Neither do I. I I don't have a total understanding of it. I am experiencing it. A Christian worldview. I'm standing in a church teaching from the book of James, which I never, ever would have thought. And next I'm going to go to the Leviticus. Oh my goodness. Think about that. Some idiot, unbelieving, near-atheistic soul teaching you. You ought to be afraid. (laughs) No, don't be. Um, uh, I'm not here on my own authority. Not here on my own authority we have a Christian worldview and it affects everything we do. And it should. This is not some small event that happened in our life that we keep secret in our back pocket. No, no. This changed the world. And then finally, he, if you remember, he resorted to Exhortations: Do this, do that, and be sure to do this and do that. So that's the book of James, about a Christian worldview, dealing with divisions in the church, expressing our Christianity by works and those things, and then the trials of life. You know, for five chapters, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? Five chapters of a short letter, and, and it, it equips us in so many different ways. I'm thankful for the little book of James. And so we thus conclude. I will open it up if, if there's any questions around the book of James or any comments that you'd like to make after our studies before we make a division and start talking about Leviticus. Any questions? Any comments? Yes, Laura. Um, at our old building on Cook Street, our pastor Bowen at that time put across, right across the top of the pulpit in the Baptistry, be doers, not just hearers only. <laughs> Amen. It still needs to be said every day. We are to be doers of our faith. We are to express it in right works before God. And if we don't, I'm sorry, I don't believe you. I know, that's pretty rough language. But I think that's what James teaches us. That if we don't see the works that are claimed, how and then can we really believe you've been converted to Jesus Christ and you have his spirit? Can't. Nope. Do the works. Uh, We don't believe in salvation by works, but we do believe in the Christian life by works. We certainly do. The Holy Spirit isn't here by accident. He is here to empower us to write living before the world that they might see. How important is that? I'll finish with this point. We need to remember that we are the, ooh, I started to use the word purveyors or something. That's not a good word, is it? We are those who, who, who bring a message to humanity, a message to the world about Jesus Christ. And the first way we do that is by our works. Hmm. You know, neighbors stop by and they speak to me because I happen to be a real nut my lawn okay especially do I trim my edges and I have neighbors that come down the street at the corner and stop and compliment me and talk to me and all those kinds of things they see my works now I'm just using a crude example but the same thing is true of Christianity do your neighbors see the works of Christ in your life We'll leave it at that. But that's what James is about. All right. I was going to say turn to Leviticus. <laughs> All right. Um, let's turn to Leviticus. Who wrote Leviticus? What did you say? No. (laughs) Uh, We believe Moses that he wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Leviticus being the third. And that came from the hand, first from the mind of God, through the inspiration of God, the words written by Moses. Let's settle that. Yes. Are there moderns that would disagree with that? Of course there are. There are moderns that would disagree that there's a sky. Uh, uh. (laughs) What I'm saying is there are those who disagree with anything you bring up. I don't care what it is. They will disagree with you I know them, I deal with them daily, and uh, uh, by the grace of God, I am no longer wearied by them, although I must admit to being have to repeating the same uh, arguments over and over and over again. You must be a Paulist, one says. Do you know what he means? That somehow the Apostle Paul wasn't really an inspired Apostle of God. And he differed with the teachings of the, uh, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's, are you a Paulist? You know, normally if somebody say, you seem to be a Paulist, I'd say, amen, brother. <laughs> I'd say, I follow everything that the Apostle Paul says, but that's not what he means. He means that I teach opposite of what the Bible does. They have rejected the Apostle Paul. So uh, there are those who would reject Moses as the author of Leviticus or the entire Pentateuch, and they would come up with at least five major arguments of who it should have been or likely was. I'm going to dispense... Uh, with that and begin my remarks by saying we believe that is our church and um, any serious Christian believes that the book of Leviticus was written by Moses and that it was inspired of God and that it is for our instruction but boy have we got lots to talk about. Uh, I will ask it this way in a provocative sense. When is the last time you offered up a lamb? No? Can't think of a time? (laughs) Um, I ate one, (laughs) but I have never offered one up. Why aren't you keeping the law? It's the law. You don't keep the law, do you? Neither did the Apostle Paul. But I haven't got time to study the book of Romans, chapter 7, 8, and 9, in order to prepare for our study of Leviticus. Leviticus is the law, just as much a law as the Ten Commandments. Why aren't you keeping them? Wait a minute, we just studied the book of Hebrews not too long ago, what did I say? Does anybody remember? Remember? Leviticus is part of the first covenant. What the book of Hebrews calls the first covenant. That is, the Mosaic covenant was the first. Yes, there was an Abrahamic one, right? But the Apostle Paul shows that that, that the Abrahamic covenant was before the law. The law came and the book of Hebrews calls it the first covenant. I know we had this is the kind of teaching that causes some controversy, I suppose. But the book of Hebrews says that the book of Leviticus is obsolete. Hebrews chapter 8, please go to it. We can trace this through the New Testament. I haven't done that yet, but we're going to uh, go to the 8th chapter of Hebrews that we already studied, but it bears reading again. Go to verse 13 to begin. It's almost impossible. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Pardon me. Not 13. I had turned to the wrong page. Chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, not the tabernacle, not the temple, but of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Leviticus, the tribe of Levi, They administer, they minister before the Lord in accordance with God's order. Leviticus. And then comes these words. Who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed that he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to thee, and in comes the word in my text, pattern, pattern, shown you on the mountain. Leviticus and all of its contents are shadows and patterns of things to come. But now he, that is Christ, our great high priest, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the minister of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them he said behold the days are coming says the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the desert. And the day that I took them out of the hand of uh, to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and write them on the, uh, in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be mercy. Merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Is that not beautiful? Ooh, write that above your doorpost. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first. What's the next word? Obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You don't kill and offer lambs because that law is obsolete. It was a picture that sacrificial lamb was. It was a type. It was a figure, a shadow of only one, the true Passover lamb. Jesus Christ. So the reason that you don't do that is because that law is obsolete now since the coming of Christ who was the fulfillment of all the things that Leviticus pointed to which was the fulfillment of all the book of Deuteronomy of all the book of Genesis and all of the Old Testament taken together. And now that it is past and Christ has come A high priest himself, after the order of Melchizedek, not the Levites, the old law is obsolete. Now I'll turn and say, the old law was perfect, holy, inspired of God. Now you're saying now past past Vic, you're you're being contradictory. Not for a minute. When I say that it is perfect and holy, I mean that it is perfect and holy insofar as it accomplishes what it was designed to do. The law was designed to do something. Anybody want to take a stab at it? The Apostle Paul makes it really clear. Amen. To show forth sin, it is by the law that we see our sin. The knowledge of sin is by the law. And just because it is now obsolete doesn't mean that it is somehow evil or something. It's just that something better has come. And the fulfillment of all the types that we're going to be dealing with in the book of Leviticus is fulfilled in one person and one person only, Jesus Christ the Lord. And he has ascended to the right hand of the Father on high. And he has sat down. Finished. He is the one we need to look to. And in the book of Leviticus, I'll have much more to say next week as we open that beautiful book. But and we have to get these things done first. In other words, we're using a principle that the Old Testament, all of it, must be interpreted in the light of the New Testament. We we are not rejecting the Old Covenant at all, but we see it through the lens of the New. That covenant predicted by Christ and predicted in the Old Testament three different times and we must see that before we wade into all of the figures and the shadows and the types in the book of Leviticus or you're not going to understand them as so many of my atheist friends says I bet you're wearing Clothing now you 're wearing uh, a cotton and uh, whatever it is linen and everything right now, and you 're violating the laws of your God depends. I always thought it was kind of cute that unbelievers and atheists would try to tell me what Leviticus is about That's a, I find that kind of funny um, they don 't get such a big laugh out of it, but Nonetheless, it's all about, and I finish with this, Leviticus, indeed the entire Old Testament, but Leviticus in particular is about Jesus Christ. If you don't hold Jesus Christ up to measure Leviticus, you're going to come out of it confused in the light of Christ and his fulfillment of all the law and that first covenant, you will be mistaken if you do not see the connection. Everything in Leviticus is about Jesus Christ. I hope that summarizes it pretty well. Next week, we'll turn to that first chapter. I still have some preliminary uh, remarks to make to you because it is very difficult to drop in from a parachute into Leviticus without studying Genesis and Exodus, okay? But nonetheless, we're going to uh, take that parachute and drop into Leviticus. I'll have to try to make the connections with the other parts of the Bible, but the real part of the Bible that is connected is the fulfillment Of all the uh, figures, of all the uh, uh, types, of all of the shadows of the book of Leviticus, Jesus Christ is the answer, the fulfillment. Remember what he says, and I know this is controversial. I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he did exactly that every element of the book of Leviticus, Christ completed, fulfilled, all of that. So much so that now it can be called obsolete. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, these precious saints and myself, We need to know your truth and we need to know these pictures of Jesus Christ. And we need to know the difference between obsolete and meaningless. They are not meaningless. They're full of meaning. Indeed, they paint the picture of Jesus Christ himself. Help us to make those distinctions as we study the precious book of Leviticus. Be with us through that high priest that sits at your right hand and who is leaning over and watching us even right now. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.